Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, we are going to once again revisit this incredibly important paragraph, maybe for the last time in this series. But I want to read once again Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray together. Father, we're going to talk about the glorious doctrine of union with Christ. Would you apply it now, even before we hear about it and learn about it? Even now, as we sit, as we stand, as we hear, would we find ourselves so fused and united and spoken for in your son Jesus that we feel the nearness of you who dwells in us and us in you, that we would describe with Paul and Colossians that we are hidden with Christ in God. And it's not clear where we end and Christ begins and where Christ stands and we begin. Let that union be a treasure to us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I watched season three of Last Chance U this week. Anybody watch Last Chance U? I was going to say I binged watched it, but I asked the internet what binge watching is, and the internet said it is three or more episodes in one sitting. So I did not binge watch it. I watched eight episodes in four nights, and I was the model of restraint for what I did. Anyway, Last Chance You, it's a documentary. It follows a junior college team for a season, and it just invites you into the world of what a junior college really is today, and that is a dumping ground for Division I players who have really messed up. If they've gone to a D1 school and their grades aren't where they should be or they've broken the law, they get bumped to a junior college for a year, and then they have to prove themselves and improve their behavior so that they can bump back to a Division I school. So it's fascinating to watch these kids, but you, you get into this cutthroat world where it's not clear for any of them, will I start, will I continue, have I improved, will I make it to the next level, am I going to get any offers for what I'm doing? It's cutthroat and it's brutal. As I was watching that, I kind of thought to myself, there is a version of Christianity that mirrors junior college football. There's a brand, there's a virgin, a version, a divergent version of Christianity that mirrors what you're seeing in junior college football. You wouldn't know it at first glance because it appears in the church and it quotes the Bible and it talks about Jesus so it looks like Christianity but at the end of the day its core belief is that 
a person must make themselves clean before they come to God. Clean up, and then you can come to God. It goes something like this. God is holy. You are not. So stop what you're doing. Clean up your language. Make better choices. Go to church more often. And when God sees that you're serious about change, then he will accept you into his kingdom. But beware. Once you get there, you better prove that you belong in that setting. You've heard that version before, if not stated that explicitly. That is a version of Christianity in our world today. And if that is the case, then only clean people are welcome here in this church space, right? The only people who are welcome to come here and attend here and to consider faith in Christ are those who have already made good lifestyle choices and good relationship choices and good media choices. Then you're a prime target for what God is going to do for you in Christ. In other words... We would like to see people in the world exhibit the fruit of the Spirit before they're ever born again and get the fruit of the Spirit. That version of Christianity is everywhere in the church today, but it is absolutely nowhere in the Scriptures. While this version says, clean yourself up and then you can come to God and he will love you and accept you, the Bible repeatedly says that we come to God as we are in our filth and God in the gospel is the one who makes us clean. That's the good news of the gospel. As Paul says in Romans, that while we were yet sinners... God sent his son Jesus to offer himself as a perfect atonement for us. If we will come to him in our present state, in our filth, in our uncleanliness, and we will repent to him and say, Jesus, I am unclean, make me clean. God makes a tremendous offer to all who will believe. And that is... I will take the whole of your uncleanliness, I will take the whole of your sin, the whole of your unbelief, and I will place it on my son Jesus on the cross to pay the penalty of your sin, and I will take my son's righteousness, I will take his belief, I will take his faithfulness, and I will place it on you, and that is what you will be judged by, the perfection of my son Jesus. Ephesians 1 screams this kind of gospel, this true orthodox gospel as loud as humanly possible. Verses 3 through 14, I just read one paragraph, there's two there. We know that it is one enormous 204 word run on sentence in the Greek. Paul, the second he starts talking about the gospel, he can't stop and he puts commas and caveats and subplots and he runs on for an entire blog post in one sentence in the beginning of Ephesians. And did you notice there is not one single solitary command in the passage that I just read? There is not a single thing for you as a guest to the gospel to do or to earn or to prove in the kingdom. Isn't that incredible? 
That's how you're being introduced to the invitation. It's not a command. It is a warmth exaltation of what God has done in Christ. Now don't get me wrong, we are going to get to punchy commands in Ephesians. When we get to the back, back half of Ephesians, Paul is going to straight up throw down in the church with stern commands for the life of a believer. We're going to hear stuff like, don't you dare let corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Anything that's slander, anything that's gossip, anything that's division, anything that tears the church down, don't you dare let that come out of your mouth. Paul's going to say, I don't even want sexual immorality named among you. I don't want you to joke about it. I don't even want a neighbor to be able to point a finger to the church and make an accusation against us. Paul is going to say, don't let the sun go down on your anger. You can be angry, but be reconciled before the sun goes down on your anger. Those are punchy commands. They're coming to us down the pipeline in the book of Ephesians. But not a single one of them appears in chapter 1 because the gospel is not that we clean ourselves up, our language, our lust, our anger, so that we can come to God, but that God in Christ finds us as we are and he makes us clean. He draws us to himself. He fills us with his Holy Spirit. And then he gives us the strength to begin to break the stranglehold that sin has on every single one of our lives. That's the gospel as it comes to us in Ephesians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul, when he thinks about this, when he talks about this, he has a favorite phrase to describe this new status. As a believer, how we stand before God. And that phrase is, in Christ. He loves the phrase, in Christ, by which he means, we are united to, we have union with Christ. Now, I want every single person in this room to take a pop quiz. All right? Get out a blank sheet of paper and a pencil if you're taking notes. I I feel the blood pressure rising as we all remember high school and middle school. You're going to take a pop quiz, three questions, and here it goes. Here's the first question. How many times does Paul, in his letters, he's written 13 letters in the New Testament, how many times does he describe a believer as a Christian? Just kind of think about that and jot your answer down, just a number How many times does he refer to a believer as a Christian in his 13 letters? Just take a wild guess. There's no way you could know this. 10, 20, 30, 40, whatever you want to guess, guess that. Question number two. How many times does Paul refer to believers with one of his favorite topics in his 13 letters as justified? He loves to talk about justification. How often does he refer to a believer as justified? So number two, you write your answer to that. Is it 10, 20, 30, 40, 50? Whatever you want to write, write that down. Question number three, how many times does Paul refer to a believer as in Christ, united to Christ? Take your wild guess and put that down on your paper. All right? Everybody got a chance to do that. Switch your papers with your neighbor. We're going to grade them. You know how many times Paul refers to believers as Christians in his 13 letters? Zero. Never. He never does. And that's okay. That's a fine title. It only happens three times in the New Testament. It just got started in Acts. It's cool for us to call each other Christians. Paul never does that. 
you know how many times he calls us justified, one of his favorite topics? This is a big deal. He says it 28 times in his letters. 28 times. That's, all, that's more than twice per letter that he talks about us as being justified. You know where this is headed, right? Number three. You can change your answer now. How many times do you think Paul refers to us as being united with Christ in his 13 letters? 164 times. 164 times. This is a really, really, really big deal to Paul because this is a really, really big deal in the life of every believer. In this single sentence that I read, Paul refers to us as being in Christ 11 times. And he's going to go on to speak about our union with Christ twice as many times in Ephesians as he does in his other letters. I think this is why this is so many people's favorite book of the Bible. Because Paul cannot get off the topic that you and I in Christ have been united to him. Christian, this is our core identity. This is the most important thing about us. This is our irrevocable status if we are born again in Christ. As Colossians 3.3 puts it beautifully, Christian, you have died. That old life that you had, your old deeds, your old sins, even your old righteous deeds, your old addictions, they are dead, they are gone, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It is now indistinguishable with the Godhead because of the person of Jesus Christ. Here in our verses... Every benefit that we have, and there's a bunch of them in these first two paragraphs, are ours because they come to us through our union with Christ. Verse 3, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood and on and on and on. Every benefit we have in the kingdom of God, from election to redemption to sanctification, is ours because God has united us to Christ, and the benefits that are Christ, the titles that are Christ, the righteousness and the blessings that are Christ, are now ours because in God's economy, we are indistinguishable from the person of Christ. We're dead. Our life is dead. We are hidden with Christ in God. Now I want us to apply that doctrine to our lives. But I realize that the doctrine of the union with Christ is going to hit us very differently depending on what kind of person we are, right? We bring our own sins, our own tendencies, our own personalities into the kingdom. And the union with Christ, this doctrine, is going to hit us differently. And I think today specifically about those in the church who dwell in the camp of shame and those in the church who dwell in the camp of pride. Now, all of us struggle at times with both, but you can really kind of weed us out and find us dwelling predominantly in one of those camps, shame or pride. And so I want to apply this doctrine to those two camps this morning. 
I'm going to start with pride because they would push their way to the front anyway and be first. A lot of us in the church, we lean towards pride, right? This is our mode of operation. We're, we're confident. We've usually accomplished some things in this life. We're very self-assured in our life. And, and here's the funny thing about pride. You would think that when we're born again, when we come to faith, when we throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus, realizing that this is only by faith through grace, not works, so that no one can boast, you would think that the camp of pride would leave their pride at the foot of the cross and not bring it into the kingdom. But all of us do. We pick it up, we baptize it, we change it, we tweak it, and we bring it with us into the church. We know that there are new rules that our pride has to play by, but we learn them very quickly and we play the pride game in the church. We know that the world, that may still celebrate cutthroat, cocky, decisive moves, but the church, it does not celebrate those things. In the church, our pride needs to be dressed up as confidence that God is behind whatever we're doing, right? That's the game we're going to play. And if I talk about my successes as God's successes, then at the end of the day, I still get to talk about successes, right? I've just learned the language that I'm supposed to use. We still want to accomplish, we still want to leave a mark, we still want to create a legacy, right? Anybody in your own heart resonate with that, feel that, think that as you struggle with pride as a born-again believer? Union with Christ brings the proud very low in the church, Because the total sum of our lives, our gifts, our fruits, our legacies, what we're capable of, all of those things, they they get placed on this timeline in Ephesians chapter 1 that begins before the foundations of the world and extends beyond all of eternity in eternity future. And when you take all that we've done and all that we've accomplished and you place it on that timeline, it looks really, really small. And Jesus looks really, really big. Jesus shines in Ephesians chapter 1. Jesus is named 15 times in 8 verses. He's there in election. He's there in salvation. He's there in sanctification. He's there in blessing. He will be there on that last day. The the world is not first a story of the saints and all that God did through them. It is a story of God and all that he did through his son. The, the camp of pride needs to hear that. The world is not first a story of the saints and all God has done, will do, can do through them. It's the story of God and what he has done through his son. May we who struggle with pride be able to say in sincere earnesty with John the Baptist. The very man who Jesus on this earth said, John, he is the greatest among men. And if there was any man in this life who had reason to boast, it would be the man who Jesus said is the greatest among men. And yet, not coincidentally, John would say, 
There's one who's coming, whose strap I am not worthy to untie. May he increase and may I decrease. Blessed be this union with Christ. I am hidden in him. Which means my accuser, he can't find my sin anymore because I'm hidden with Christ. But it also means my audience can't find my successes anymore because I am hidden with Christ. Blessed be this union with Christ. That's the camp of pride. But there's another group in the church who couldn't understand that camp in their wildest dreams, and that is those among us who feel deep and abiding shame. We just hear this track, this critical voice that accuses us, it judges us, it belittles us. Yes, we're here, we're born again, we profess faith, we're members in good standing of this church, but somehow we feel like we're here by the skin of our teeth. And one of our greatest fears is that God or the members of this church will uncover who we really are. They're going to know us in our deepest and darkest places. We will be exposed as a fraud or a hypocrite or a fake. And for those of us who dwell in that camp, union with Christ is good news. It lifts up the shamed in the church, but not as we might think. I think shame can often be confused with humility because on the surface they act the same way, right? A person who struggles with shame can be very deferential and very self-effacing and that looks a lot like humility, but at the core those two things are very, very different. If humility is a fixation on God, shame is still, just like pride, a fixation on myself. What about me? How do I measure up? What if people find out my sins and my failures and what I have failed to contribute? Whether it's pride or shame, I am still thinking solely about myself. And so ironically, the camp of shame needs to hear almost the same message as the camp of pride. It's not about you. It's not even about your failures. It's not even about the bad things you've done. It's not even about the secrets that even now, even today, you have kept hidden from the closest people to you. Because when you take the sum total of the life of a person who is gripped with shame, even the dark and despicable and nasty things about the person who is frozen in their own inadequacies, and you place that on the timeline of Ephesians chapter 1 that starts before the foundations of the world and it goes to eternity future, that life, even its failures, it just looks really, really small and relatively unimportant. And Jesus looks really, really big all the same. Jesus shines. 
He's there in election. He's there in salvation. He's there in sanctification. He's there in the blessings that come. He's there on the last day. The world is not first a story of the saints and all they failed to do for God. It is a story of God and what he has done and succeeded to do in our failures in and through Jesus. And so the camp of pride and the camp of shame get to join hands in the doctrine of the union with Christ and say with Paul in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. My righteousness doesn't live and my failures don't live. My successes don't live, and my inadequacies don't live. The great gifts I have to contribute to the kingdom, it no longer lives, and the failure and the longings that I wish I had more gifts, that no longer lives. I have been crucified with Christ, and the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for those of us who do not know you and do not trust in you that union with Christ is a massive invitation for the glories to come. Let us repent of our sin and uncleanliness and run to Jesus that we might be found in him with the righteousness that is not our own. And I pray for those of us who are born again, who are united with Christ, even if we don't know it, even if we don't act like it, that you would raise us up even in our shame and pride and seat us with Christ hidden with him and all the benefits that that entails. Do that as a miracle in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.